It is a it is a real joy to be here with you all, and thank you, Larry, for just the gracious invitation and in, uh, having me come. Like I said, I just finished it at Southern Seminary, and uh, although I graduated with what they call a Master of Divinity, I don't feel like I've mastered anything. And uh, yeah, never been more aware of, of how much I don't know um, after a couple years of study. Uh, but it was it was a privilege to be there, and it's a it's even a greater privilege to be here and to bring God's word to you all. We're going to be in in Psalm 95 this morning, and you can go ahead and open up there. Now, the book of Psalms is is the hymn book of the Christian faith. It's it gives voice to God's people in response to who God is and to what He's done. It's often corporate in its nature, like Larry was talking about earlier. It it talks about our song and, and, and what we are doing together, but it's also intensely personal at times and runs the gamut of emotions from awe to, to intimacy. Now Psalm 95, it constitutes a song of praise to God that looks to the character of God and the work of God as the basis for our faithful, persevering worship. Psalm 95 was likely used by the Israelites during the the, the Feast of Tabernacles. It's a, a feast that God instituted after the Israelites made it into the Promised Land. And this feast was to recount God's preserving work in, in liberating them from Israel and delivering them, protecting them, preserving them through the desert. So they would, they would be reminded of these 40 years they spent in the wilderness and recount this psalm together. And what this psalm does is it roots us in, in God's work and character and calls us to come to Him in worship. Now, many of you all know uh, I've, I've worshipped as something I've been around a lot. Uh, my dad is the director of Sovereign Grace Music and uh, has led worship before I was even alive uh, on Sunday mornings. And, and I've had the privilege to be involved in that as well for the last 13 years and uh, have been able to lead in many places and, and lead people to see who God is and to, and to respond to what He's done. Uh, but as I've, as I've studied and as I've been different places and talked to different people, what I've seen is that we often functionally have a misconception of what, what worship is. And we tend to think of worship as singing. And it is singing, but it's, it's much more than singing. We tend to think of worship as what we do when we gather together, but it's, it's much more than that. Worship is our, our whole life response to God, to who He is and what He's done. And Psalm 95, I think, will help us understand and get after what, what true worship is. So the ultimate point of this text that we're going to be looking at is, is perseverance. We, it, we start off and it looks like, oh, we're talking about singing and, and shouting, and we'll get to that in a second, but it's, it's really about perseverance, about standing firm in our faith. We must know and trust that God will do what He says He will do. We must take Him at His word. And God's word and His works, His, His character and His promises, they will not ever fail. For those who place their faith in Him, He has promised to give everlasting life. He has promised us eternal rest. And, and I've, I've listened along to some of the, uh, the messages that, that Larry's been given in John. And the consistent theme that you guys have been talking about is, is, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. And that's what this passage does. That's what Psalm 95 is about. As Christians, we must go again and again and draw from the well of who He is to what He said, to what He's done, and be reminded and remind one another of the revelation of Him so that we do not depart from it. Our corporate worship should function as a means to remind us of who He is, and and our lives of worship should be a response to all that He's done for us. 
So the big idea that we're going to be getting after as we open this passage is that true worship is relentlessly God-focused and leads us to enter His eternal rest. True worship is relentlessly God-focused and leads us to enter His eternal rest. Every week we gather together and open, open God's Word together, open the Bible. And may we, never, may we never take for granted the privilege that it is to have the, the words of God here with us. It carries, this book right here carries a weight and authority as if God was in this room right now, now addressing each one of us, all of us, corporately. And I don't want us to take that for granted. And so we're going to do something a little bit different. Um, and again, this is the first time I've preached, so I figured I can, why not, try something a little different. Uh, and, and we're going to stand as we read God's Word together. Um, I think this helps remind us of, of the privilege and, and the serious nature of, of what this book contains. This is the Word of God. And then it also serves me in just reminding, reminding me and reminding all of us that God's addressing each one of us. I'm not, I'm not bringing my words to you. I'm bringing God's Word to you. So would you stand with me as I read Psalm 95? O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into His presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to Him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. In His hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are His also. The sea is His, for He made it. And his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. For he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Let's pray. Father, we come to you thankful for what you have revealed to us in this book. Thank you for for being the Word made flesh and, and sending Jesus Christ into this world to save us from our sins. Pray that I may be found faithful to to present what you have given us in this book. Not my thoughts. Thank you that I don't stand on my thoughts or, or my, my interpretations, but, but I stand on your word. And so may, may your word pierce our hearts this morning and may we see you in your glory and live lives uh, responding to all you've done for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can go ahead and be seated. Once again, the, the big idea that we're getting at that true worship, what true worship is, true worship is relentlessly God-centered and leads us to enter His eternal rest. And we're going to unpack this through three sections of this psalm. First, we're going to look at, in verses 1 through 5, how true worship rejoices in God's greatness. And second, in verses 6 and 7, true worship roots our identity in Him. And third, 7 through 11, true worship perseveres to the end. And I hope you got all those down because I'm not going to repeat them. (laughs) So first, true worship rejoices in God's greatness. In these first five verses, the psalmist invites us to do three things. First, first we are to, to sing to the Lord. And I know I just said that worship is not just singing, but, but it certainly is singing. Uh, singing is not the only way we approach God, but it is certainly 
a central way we come to him. Singing, unlike anything else, connects the truth that we declare with emotions that we feel. It connects words that we articulate with what stirs our affections. And singing, there is a marriage between words and melody that stirs our affections unlike anything else. It's when we say, uh, oh say, can you see by the dawn's early light? doesn't do much for people. But when, when we sing that together, it stirs people and it brings people together. Uh, I heard one, one guy say one time, just as wine washes food down to the pit of the stomach, so melody washes, washes truth and, and words down to the pit of our souls. But our singing, it's not just for singing's sake. It's not just because that's what we've always done. It's not just because it, it gives us a good feeling. Singing is because God calls us to sing. We don't, we don't sing because it's, it's, it's fun. It, it seems like a good idea. We sing because God's Word calls us to sing. So we sing together. Second, we are to make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. We are to make a joyful noise to Him with songs of praise. So what is, what is a joyful noise? The best way to illustrate this is probably to, to just say this. There's, I know there's several Washington Nationals fans here. And so when the, when the Baltimore Orioles inevitably defeat the Nationals in the World Series this year, there will be, I will be making a joyful noise. And this joyful noise is a shout of, of victory. It's a declaration of, a joyful declaration rooted in truth that we shout. We can't, can't hold it in. So we're to, but we're to make a joyful noise all the more so because he is, is the rock of our salvation. When Israel was wandering in the desert and they were desperate and thirsty, Jesus delivered them, God delivered them through a rock. He is the rock of our salvation. Water poured forth from a rock. He is a rock that will not be moved. Though storms assail, though, though trials come, He is our rock and our deliverer. He is our, our protection. And He is worthy to be praised with, with joyful shouts, with joyful songs of praise. And this joy isn't, isn't a baseless joy. It's not a slap a smile on your face happiness. This joy is genuine because it's rooted in God. It's not rooted in our circumstances. It's not rooted in how we feel tomorrow morning. It's rooted in who God is and what He's done. He is the rock of our salvation. May our hope be built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And third, the psalmist in these first five verses calls us to come into His presence with thanksgiving. Let's not be lost on the remarkable nature of the fact that God has called us to, to come into His presence. Now, I've never been invited to go to the White House and meet the President of the Oval Office, and I, I assume most of you haven't either. But it, were I to receive that invitation, I think there would be a, a, a lot of emotions that I'd feel. And there would be this, this awe mixed with this giddiness that, that I'm invited to come into the, the power of this office. I'd be taken aback and humbled. Now, I remember back when I was, I was seven years old, there was a, a, a man in our church who was a golf pro at, at an exclusive club, in, a golf club in, in Charlotte. And one, I was friends with his son, and one day we get a call from them, and, and he says, uh, would your, would, for me, would your brother and you like to come to the golf club with us? Michael Jordan's going to be there. He's playing. Would you like to have lunch with him? And as a seven-year-old, I was blown away. Uh, I mean, this is the greatest of all time, and I get to go have lunch with him. And so I was, I was giddy and in awe and uh, excited. I remember I had a T-shirt that had a, a big caricature, big head of Michael Jordan on it, and I put it on, going downstairs. Mom, can I wear this? No, you can't wear that, son. You can't, you can't go out of the house with that on and go meet Michael Jordan. Did Michael Jordan invite me there? No. 
Did he remember meeting me? Did he even say more than 10 words to me? No. But that left a, a, a distinct impression on me, and it's something I still remember. Uh, but I'm not talking about Michael Jordan here. I'm talking about God. And God has called us to come into his presence. He's the one that takes initiative to us, and we're, come, we're to come with, with hearts of gratefulness, with hearts of thanksgiving to the Most High God. We gather together because He calls us. That's why we start our gatherings with a call to worship. And enjoyed this morning as, as Larry read from God's Word. And it's God who initiates our worship. It's not, we don't come in the, in the splendor of our majesty and the glory of who we are. We come because of what He's done and because He calls us to come. So our true worship is certainly expressive. We've seen coming with thanksgiving, shouting, singing. But look at the, the four here in verse 3. The psalmist grounds what he says in those first two verses, in these next three, verses 3 through 5. Verse 3 says, For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. We sing, we shout, we come into His presence because He is a great God. And during this time that the psalm was written, Israel was often looked upon as, as a nation with a pretty weak God. They were a, a, a wandering people, a wilderness people, and they only had one God. And most of the nations surrounding them, they were polytheistic. They had many gods. They had a God for every circumstance and every situation to deliver them and meet them in their needs. But look here, these other gods, they're not even worthy of a mention. He is the king above all gods. Just lump them all in, all little g-gods. He is the king above all gods. He is the only God. He is the Alpha and the Omega. All, all the other gods aren't even fit to come before Him. He is superior above all. He is all in all. He rules over all. He has dominion over all. He has power over it all. There is no, no power we can see in this world that compares to His power. There is no majesty that can approach His glory. And verse 4 tells us, In His hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are His also. The highest mountain in the world Mount Everest, 29,035 feet. The, the deepest point in the earth is the, in the Mariana Trench. It's 36,198 feet. Now, that's a, that's, those are massive. Mount Everest is almost five and a half miles high. You flip Mount Everest upside down, you construct the three tallest buildings in the world on top of that. So, so man's greatest architectural feats. Put those right on top of one another on Mount Everest. Flip it upside down, and there's still room at the bottom for the Washington Monument. That, that's... Those are some depths. And they're in his hand. It's not in his hands. It's in his hand. It's remarkable. Like, like I hold a golf ball in my hand. God holds the heights and the depths of the earth in his hand. And the, additionally, the connotations of, of the depths here have to do with, with things to be searched out. Things that are unknown. The mysteries of this world. He has it in his hand. He is the all-knowing God. He's the all-seeing God holding the world in His hand. Brothers and sisters, whatever you face, all the unknowns in your life, all the, all the why did this happen? Why am I facing this challenge? Why has this person not come to know the Lord? God has it in His hand. The sea is His, for He made it. And His hands formed the dry land. Now, this past week, we were on vacation in the Outer Banks, and there's little that, that makes you feel so small as when you stand on the, on, on the beach and look out. And you can see about two miles this way and two miles that way and maybe three miles out. And I can't even see out of the county that I'm in. And the sea is his, for he made it. The psalmist is just content to let this statement stand in simplicity. Oh yeah, it's his. 
for he made it. The ocean covers 70% of the globe. It's his, he made it. He is the creator of all. He owns it all. And his hands formed the dry land. So he's got the sea in his hand. His hands formed the dry land. It's his. And think about just the connotations of this. What, what is left out of that? There's nothing in this world that's left out of that. It can, it, you don't have to think very hard. Everything is the answer to what that contains. There isn't anything that we can come up with that he doesn't own, that he isn't God over. So how can we help but not worship this God? Regularly, let's call to mind his glory and his majesty. And I'd encourage you just today, it's a beautiful day outside, this week, as you, as you drive around and you see the trees, you see the sky, you see the sun and the moon and the stars, they're his, he made it. It is all within his domain. Marvel at his glory. And then apply, apply that reality to your life. Why do we worry? It's all his. Why do we give into anxiety? The psalmist paints this, this all-encompassing picture of heights and depths and sea and land, painting this picture that everything is his. So do you think that God doesn't know what you're going through? Do you think he doesn't know what you faced this past week or these past three years or what you're going to face next year or in the next ten years? He knows it. It's in his hands. Come into his presence with thanksgiving. Make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation because this, this is the God whom we praise. Our true, true worship, it's not about what we do. It's rooted in the greatness of God. It's rooted in his character. It's rooted in who he is and what he's done. True worship is, is God-centered in every aspect. And let's take a look at verses 6 and 7 together. Uh, true worship roots our identity in God. These verses say, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. For He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Again, just as in, this first sec- as in the first section, He's calling us to three responses. We're to worship, to bow down, to kneel. And all of these, all of these have connotations of just laying ourselves low before God. We see God in His glory, in His majesty, in His greatness. And, and how can we not but lay ourselves low? The, the word worship here really means to prostrate yourself, to re- lay yourself out before God. He is so glorious that we must respond by making ourselves low. But look what, what the psalmist here does at the end of verse 6. It's we kneel before the Lord, our Maker. Look at that pronoun, our Maker. He made us. He's not only the God of the heights and the depths. He formed the, formed the land and has the sea in His hand. He is our Maker. You and me. He made us. Verse 7 digs into the connotations of this. Yes, yes, God is certainly awesome in His transcendence. We sing, shout, and come to Him. But He is our God. He is our God. He's not, he's not the God. He's not someone else's God. He's not just the God for the rich or the poor or the weak or the strong. God is our God, all of our God. We come to Him as as His people. We are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. And we can tend to think of of being sheep as just this cute biblical imagery. We even wear wool at times. But sheep are stupid animals. And we are being called sheep here. Without a shepherd, sheep are directionless. They're, they're wandering. They have no protection. It's not flattery to be called a sheep. But God, the God, the maker of heaven 
and earth. He is our shepherd. And, and we are the sheep of, of His pasture. This is not just any pasture. This is His pasture. As the psalmist laid out just how everything is His, for God made it, we are the sheep of His, the people of His, His pasture. So He provides for our needs. There's nothing in our life that happens outside the control of His shepherding hand. He is our, our shepherd king. Nothing in your life happens beyond the purview of, of this pasture of God. No trouble is faced. There's no need that's met in our lives without, without His sovereign hand at work. He, he is the all-sufficient God. I love of the end of in Christ alone. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. He is the, the all-sufficient God. We are the people of His pasture, and we are the sheep of, of His hand. So Christian, find your identity. Find your hope in Him. Be grounded in, in who He is and what He's done. Our hope, our, our faith, our comfort, it doesn't stem from who we are. It doesn't stem from what we do. It stems from who we are in Him and what He has done for us. He is our God. He is our shepherd. He is the Lord over, over sea and land. They are His. He cups the depth of the earth in His hand. He formed all this around us and beyond us. It's all His. And Abraham Kuyper famously said that there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. He is the all-powerful. He is the all-knowing God. He causes the earth to quake. With a word, He causes nations to tremble. And He is our God. We are His people. He is the rock of our salvation. He is our deliverer and our sustainer. He is our omnipotent protector. And His loving hand leads us and guides us. Don't be lost on the glory and the fact that we are, are His people. He is our God. True worship is all about God, yes. And it's because we see Him in His glory and His greatness that we sing. But it's also because we are His. Our identity is, is rooted in Him, found in Him, that we worship and bow down before Him. Because of who He is and, and what He's done, we give ourselves to God. As Paul writes in Romans 12, Therefore, brothers, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. It's because of who He is and what He's done. Now, for years, uh, Psalm 95, I've used this psalm as, as a call to worship. Uh, when I lead corporate singing, I want uh, it to be God who's calling us to worship. And I want people to know that it's, it's God who's speaking. And that's what we're gathering around. So, I'll often read Psalm 95, but I have never, ever, in the dozens of times that I've read this publicly, never read past the third line of verse 7. And, and the reason is because I, I wanted there to be some kind of, of declaration of response like the other psalms around it. So you look at Psalm 97, it says, Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, and give thanks to His holy name. Or Psalm 99 ends with, Exalt the Lord our God and worship at His holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. Or even Psalm 103, Bless the Lord, all His works in all places of His dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Those seem so much more fitting with where we've been. But, but we, we almost seem to get sidetracked here. And uh, there, there are many liberal theologians that even say, oh, this end of verse 7 through 11, it's not even part of this psalm. It's just a totally different direction. But as I've studied and, and 
prayed over this passage and, and read, I, I completely beg to differ. Uh, God clearly has much more to say to us in this change in direction. This last section of Psalm 95 provides a fitting conclusion as it warns us of the responsibility those who have heard the truth have to it and the deadly danger of ignoring His Word. It's, we cannot, the psalmist is, is basically painting a picture, we cannot take this truth for granted. Everything we're praising Him for, we cannot take it lightly. And he uses the, the Israelites as an example. So remember the public use of the psalm we talked about earlier, how it's used during the feast that celebrates God's goodness and provision, about how God delivered them from Egypt and, and kept them through the wilderness. It reminds them of God's 40 years of, of persevering or preservation. And as this psalm is recounted, the people begin by extolling His greatness and remembering that they're His people. But then they're brought to the sober reality that they are prone to wander. They have a propensity to rebel and, and to give in to unbelief. They're reminded that, that in the wilderness, God's people didn't take God at His word. So true worship isn't just about the singing and the shouting, the kneeling and the reflecting. True worship is about persevering. It's about not giving up and not giving in. So that's our, our third point for this last section of Psalm 95. True worship perseveres to the end. Now this first half, it majored on this expressive worship with rejoicing in all, rooted in who He is and what He's done. The second half warns of these dangers of knowing this truth and failing to place our faith in it. We are in danger, just as these Israelites were, of knowing what was right, of, of seeing the work of God and knowing the truth of the Gospel, but failing to enter His rest. But this, this psalm, it's not just about Israel. It's about us. It points us to Christ. This psalm isn't about just Israel failing to enter the promised land, not entering the rest. This psalm is about our salvation. So we're going to turn, spend the rest of our time in Hebrews 3. So if you can turn over there. I, I was recently in a uh, class on Old Testament inter- interpretation, and, and the professor, his whole approach to the class and what he said from the get-go was that the Old Testament must be read through the lens of the New Testament writers because they are its ultimate interpreters. He was challenging us to understand the, the Old Testament in light of the New. And what we have in the, in the New Testament on many Old Testament passages is infallible, inerrant, authoritative interpretation of the Old Testament. And fortunately for me today, although my interpretation does not fit into any of those categories of being infallible, inerrant, or authoritative, uh, Hebrews 3 provides an, one of the most extensive commentaries on any Old Testament passage on this very passage. So we don't have to wonder what the point of this last section of Psalm 95 is because God's Word makes the application abundantly clear. So let's look down at Hebrews 3, verse 7. It says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, we'll stop right there. The, whenever we see it, therefore in Scripture, there's this uh, trite little saying that seminary professors like to say, we have to ask what the therefore is there for. And uh, so... To understand what the therefore is therefore, let's go back and look at verse 5. Up, up until this point, the writer of Hebrews is, is painting this picture of Jesus being superior to the angels and Jesus being superior to Moses. So he says in verse 5, Now Moses was, faith, was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are His house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Therefore, 
And the writer's about to dive into Psalm 95, verses 7 through 11, to illustrate what it means to stand firm to the end. Just look there, it says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in a rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years, therefore I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Let's look back at what what Israel did. Psalm 95 mentions Meribah and Massa, and those those words are are for quarreling and testing. And as, as God delivered Israel from Egypt, from the hands of the Egyptians, miraculously delivered them and then brought them through the Red Sea, again, miraculously delivering them, the people are brought out in the wilderness. And first, they have no food. God brings them to an oasis. I mean, they have no water. God brings them to an oasis. Then God, God brings them food when they are hungry. So He delivers them again and again, right after they've been delivered from the Egyptians, from the Red Sea. God's preserving them. And then in Exodus 17, it says that the people test the Lord because they're thirsty again. They see their thirst as a sign that God doesn't really care about them. They were brought out of Egypt just to die. And, and for us, we can see the absurdity of this. And, and so Moses comes before God and, and is distraught and angry with, this, with the Israelites and, and says to God, tells Moses, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? So instead of, of judging the people for their testing, their questioning of God, God delivered them. He showed them, them mercy. And what, what's so remarkable about this, so the psalmist has already used this terminology, a rock of our salvation. What God says is that He will stand before them at the rock and the rock is to be struck. And so in, in one sense, God is the rock. And He is the one that's giving them this, this water to deliver them and save them. It's much like in John 4, as you guys just looked at, the water, Jesus says, the water I will give Him will become in Him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that Jesus, Jesus is that rock. The rock Himself was Christ. So when the people should have been judged, God showed them incredible mercy. And after all this, did the people take God at His word? Did they turn to trust Him and, and enter the promised land and enter His rest? No. Several years later, as they're at the brink of entering the land, they're thirsty once again, and they're doubting God again and quarreling together. And Moses has no patience for, patience for this time. God tells Moses to take the staff with you and just tell the rock before the people's eyes. Tell the rock to give up its water. So he doesn't tell the rock. He just strikes the rock twice. But God, merciful yet again, incredibly merciful yet again, Water pours forth from the rock. But as a result of, of not trusting God, not taking Him at His word, they were denied entrance into the rest that God had promised in the promised land. They experienced God's liberation and deliverance and for 40 years saw His gracious provision and works. 40 years, again and again, every day, manna and quail. 40 years, His gracious provision. But they failed to take God His word and trust His promises. Unbelief cost Israel eternal rest. So, what does this have to do with us today? 
Why do, we, why do we care about Israel entering the promised land? What does that have to do with us in Maryland 3,000 years later? The writer of Hebrews looks back to Israel's unfaithfulness, and he uses it as a warning to not harden our hearts. If the hardening of Israel's hearts at the message of Moses, the servant, costs them rest in the promised land, how much more so are we in danger of judgment if we fail to hear and respond, live lives of worship, to the message of Jesus the Son. Moses the servant, Jesus the Son. Let's look at Hebrews 3.12. Let's continue there. The writer says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. I love how the writer of Hebrews uses this psalm and shows us that it, it goes far beyond just setting this example for Israel. It's about us. And he, he look, uses that word today to talk about how David used this word today when he wrote this psalm for the people right then and there. And it still speaks to us today. And uh, in verse 7, he says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says. He could have said, therefore, as the psalmist says, or therefore, as David says, but as the Holy Spirit says, speaking to just the, the authority and the, the fact that God's Word still speaks to us today. But our danger in this is unbelief. It's still today. Our danger is that we fail to trust in God and believe His promise. This is what makes our hearts evil, and we can't neglect to connect our faith in God's words and promises with obedience. We must, as we see Him in His glory and His splendor, and as we reflect on the, our identity in Him, we, we must respond in obedience. Faith and obedience, they're inseparable. So our true worship is fueled by, by this daily, fresh revelation of God. It's, it's a relentless looking to Him. It's a relentless God-centeredness. Because this knowledge, it proves intensely practical for us. It's, it's in knowing Him. It's in knowing His work that we live lives of, of obedience before Him and enter His rest. Hebrews tells us that we need each other in this. We are all, every one of us, prone to wander. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. We, we are in danger of neglecting God's word and work. And our fight is a community project. One in which we, we continually remind one another and are reminded of the word and work of God. And we must be relentless in this. Commenting on this passage, Tom Schreiner, uh, New Testament uh, theologian, says, Encouragement and exhortation, the author believes, are a community project and a mutual endeavor. Believers should gather together to strengthen and encourage one another. They should be reminded of the goodness of God and the dangers of unrepentant sin. Occasional encouragement does not suffice. Instead, it is needed every day. The author pauses to highlight the word today from Psalm 95. The day of final rest has not yet arrived. It is still today. A day when mutual exhortation and encouragement are needed. Every day matters to the author. There is no such thing as a routine day without significance. Love that end, end of the quote. Every day matters to the author of Hebrews. There is no such thing as a routine day without significance. So for us in this, the application is, is twofold. First, we trust God. We must take Him at His word. We must look to Him and believe that He is who He says He is. He is the, 
creator of all. He holds the, the depths of the earth in His hand. He is our, our great shepherd. And we must go to God regularly in His Word and look to Him and work to labor to expand our view of who God is and what He's done. And, and with the greatness of God, we're never going to exhaust it. He is so far above and beyond us. So, so go to Him in His Word. And second, we must meet together. And this is how our, our Sunday gatherings should function. We're not to neglect meeting together. So don't take the time that we gather together for granted. You need this. I need this. We need this. We need life together. And that's, that's why we come together on Sunday mornings. We gather to remind one another and be reminded of God, His work, to learn from and be sharpened by His Word. He has, has fresh revelation for you today and every Sunday. Do not neglect meeting together. But Sunday is not enough. It's, it's every day. We need one another. It's not enough for us to walk out our relationship with God on our own. We need to do it together. There's too much danger. There's too much at stake. Every day carries too much significance. We need others around us who, who know us and who live with us, share life with us, who challenge us and encourage us, and who ultimately remind us of, of what true worship really is. We need others to relentlessly center us on God, bringing each other back to what He is, to who He is, to what He has done. God holds the depths of the earth in His hand. So when we doubt, let's encourage one another to look to Him who is the Maker of all, who is the God over all. When we face challenges or evil in this world, we need to look to our great Shepherd who has delivered us and who watches over us and protects us. When Satan tempts us to despair and tells us of the guilt within, let's look upward together. Look to Him who has conquered our sin, who has paid for every sin. So we are to, to meet together, to live life together. So what's, what's all this talk about rest? And we've talked about the rest for Israel being the promised land. But David wrote the psalm long after Israel had entered the promised land. God tells Israel because of their unbelief that they shall not enter the rest. But the psalmist is, is writing to us, to, to his people, to remember God, remember Him, remember His work. Look at, look at chapter 4, verse 5. Again in this passage he said, They shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter it because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterwards, in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. And the mention of Joshua leading the people to the promised land, it points us to Jesus. Jesus is, is actually, Jesus and Joshua are the same word in the Greek. So when the writer of Hebrews is writing this and, and the initial readers are reading this, they see Jesus' name there. And Joshua is seen then as a, as a type of Jesus. Joshua is is the, well, I was going to say Jesus is the final and better Jesus. So Joshua is the opposite of that. <laughs> Jesus is the final and better Joshua. Uh, Schreiner again says, the salvation and rest given through Joshua, they were never intended to be the final rest for the people of God. The earth, earthly rest in the land under Joshua point forward to the heavenly rest given to Jesus Christ, to the heavenly country and city awaiting believers and Jesus Christ. So this, this rest, that is promised. It's about much more than a land. It's about eternal peace, and it's about heaven. 
So if you're a non-Christian here, there's good news for you today. Yes, you've walked in doubt. Yes, you've walked in, in unbelief. Yes, you've questioned the Word of God and not believed in Him. You've heard the Word of God and not responded, but it is still today. The opportunity to enter His rest is still available to you. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. Hearing is, is not enough. You must place your trust in God. There's a coming day where everyone will face judgment. And those who are not found in Him will be cast into hell and be under eternal, eternal punishment. So find yourself in Him. Take His Word seriously. Become one of His sheep. You have a, there's a gracious invitation from a loving and faithful Father to come into His presence. Believe on Jesus Christ who has taken upon Himself your sin, who has taken upon Himself the punishment that you deserve, who has died the death that you deserve to die and set you free from your sin if only you believe in Him. Believe in Him and you can have eternal life and enjoy His rest as a child. For, for the rest of us, for the Christians here, there is good news for you in this as well. It's still today and God has brought us together as a community of believers who are walking with one another, caring for one another, and pointing one another to the character and work of God. So whatever you face, whatever you face this week, whatever you face this year, whatever you face the rest of your life, you're not on your own. So exhort one another with the greatness of God. Remind one another of your identity in Him and encourage one another to faith-filled obedience, to true worship centered on God that leads to His eternal rest. And there's a day coming when His people, when His people will enter His eternal rest. The promise to Israel of a land will be fulfilled in the coming of heaven where every wrong will be made right, every tear will be wiped away, every Every sin will be gone from this world. Every, every disease will be healed. There is a day coming when we will see Him, him face to face. And we long for that day. Let me close with, with this quote from, from John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, but the great pastor who, who penned just an unending number of letters in care for people around him. One, one woman wrote to him, she was a Christian that was just wearied by the world and sin. And Newton writes this to her. The Lord's thoughts are not like ours. In His love and in His ways there are heights which we cannot reach, depths which we cannot fathom, lengths and breadths beyond the ken of our feeble sight. Let us then simply depend upon Him and do our little best, leaving the event in His hand. In the letter I received yesterday from a woman, she writes thus, I'm at present very ill with some disorder in my throat, which seems to threaten my life. But death or life, things present or things to come, all things are mine, and I am Christ, and Christ is God's. Oh, glorious privilege, precious foundation of soul rest and peace when all things about us are most troublesome, Soon we shall be at home with Christ, where sin, sorrow, and death have no place. And in the meantime, our beloved will lead us through the wilderness. How safe, how joyous are we. May we be in the most evil case. And Newton concludes with this, The Lord grant that you and I and yours and mine be happy 
in the same assurance when we shall have death and eternity near in our view. Brothers and sisters, let's be centered on who He is, on what He's done, and, and long for, enter that eternal rest of His promise. Let's pray.